0: This is the Gray Man Podcast, Episode 8. Today we're going to discuss how accurate is reading body language? What is the reliability of detecting deception when evaluating is a person being truthful and honest or are they being deceptive? We'll dive a little deeper on what these clusters mean, the other factors we need to take into consideration and how we need to evaluate it. Big portion of this is how we look at this subject and how we evaluate these situations adding in also our individual skill and experience. We're going to dive a little deeper into this subject and try to take a more honest and unbiased and objective look at the subconscious of an individual in the situation, as well as our own subconscious. We'll see if we can separate our own biases, our preconceived notions, and be a little more honest with ourselves when evaluating either our own body position, our own statements, or that of another. What is the reliability and accuracy of this type of information and evaluation? That's what we'll discuss right here on Grayman, Hiding in Plain Sight. I'll be the first to admit that it's not easy to always translate the knowledge or the training programs and classes I have from those formats into a podcast. I have pre-made materials and classes and syllabuses, essentially, as well as videos that I use, depending on who I'm training. When I train interrogators going to work with Joint Task Force and SOCOM, I focus very heavily on their job, which is typically on reading body language, understanding the culture of not only the location they're going to, but the unit they're going to be supporting, and also basic questioning techniques and how to plan an interrogation. When working with military officers, I focus more on verbal detecting of deception, as it tends to work more in their field. Also, how to work with the interrogators, the analysts, signals intelligence, and other disciplines, and then how to be an officer in the environment they're going to be working in, whether it's the unit or the specific country and AO that they have. When I train civilians, I often categorize and organize it based on their requests of what they want to learn, which sometimes is more just general fun and trivia-based stuff on what's it like to be an interrogator, or a specific training program that they request based on either their industry, their job, career field, or whatever their organization is doing at that time. So when I do this training, I have videos I use. Sometimes I use some of these uh, cop shows or documentaries where they speak with law enforcement or criminals. I use clips from movies on occasion. I have used the news, politicians, uh, courts, TV-type stuff where they're got lawyers questioning people or when they showing the person on the stand and the body language or the ways they're speaking or even the jury. I also use different studies, charts and diagrams, the books I recommend, different articles and blogs, things that aren't all that common or even have people write their own material. And then there's always practical exercise or on the job training depending on what the subject is. Despite those skills, one of the skills I'm not really great at is doing things like making videos for YouTube, and it would be difficult and time-consuming to take all these things to try to organize them, what can I actually use, skip the things that I know are classified, how do I credit people for it, the different ways all that formatting works. So it's a lot easier for me just to do the podcast. So after discussions with people, a friend of mine that encouraged me to do this, as well as other people that I've done stuff with in the past kind of came up with a plan of how we're going to do this and we started out with a few episodes with general overviews of subjects that tend to get people's interest that they think are more fun. Then based off suggestion and interaction and what people think, we picked a subject which was detecting deception, which I broke down into verbal indicators as well as nonverbal indicators being body language and then Do two or three or four shows on that before moving on to another subject, doing some cool guy stuff or some tricks of the trade or maybe another current events video like those spies and all the colleges that we did a week or two ago. So to catch you up, if you're new to this or you're just getting a backstory, all this week on Facebook, Gray Man Concepts put up every morning a picture of somebody, one or more people, as well as a statement about their body language, whether it tended to mean or might mean something or definitely did mean something in that situation then as i mentioned in the last podcast this upcoming week there'll be a lot of uh, statements that may or may not have pictures or memes with them verbal statements in the way people communicate that may indicate deception of some type or just indicate something other than what we think those statements mean now if you're wondering why is this important to the show it's because i was deciding what would I do today and then based on an, one of the conversations I had on Facebook this morning I decided to do the show now that I was going to do next Saturday going into this coming week of deceptive statements. So in my experience when I go into it in the order I did here with body language I tend to get more misunderstanding, confusion or perhaps disagreement when it comes with the body language stuff. In fact, I thought I would get a little bit more than I did on Facebook, but I'm doing the video now because there's de- definitely some misunderstandings and confusion and there might be a little frustration. Now, we can't really see now because we're going into next week, but typically when it comes to the verbal stuff, I actually don't get as much pushback on it. And realistically, that's probably where I should get the pushback because there's a lot more, I would say, ease and accuracy in body language when you know how to evaluate it and learn how to evaluate it. Whereas there's a lot more flexibility in verbal statements because of the psychology behind it, the situation, feelings and emotions are a big factor. As well as just somebody's general ability to use language what's their education level how do they normally speak and determine what that is when it's somebody you're not that familiar with there's far more variables in that situation than there are with body language and those variables require a lot more evaluation and understanding and knowing and understanding body language actually helps with that so an example is when i teach these subjects it's very easy to teach body language and then start factoring in and adding in the verbal statements, the conversation, the situation. That's not uncommon at all. What is more common is trying to teach deceptive language and then discuss body language with it. I can teach a lot about body language without using conversations and just having people go back and read, listen to what they're doing. So like when I say, watch the video, figure it out, then go back and listen to what somebody's saying. If I discuss or teach people about deceptive statements, It's very difficult and even foolish, in my opinion, to try to do it without going into the body language of the situation. There are some clear-cut examples you can use. Like in the last podcast, I talked about people getting pulled over and how they tell the story. If those things manifest, then yes, that is easier. But you can't count on a person giving up deceptive statements the way you're hoping they will to make your life easier. Sometimes you got to put a little more work into it. So let's start by how we look at this. How are we looking at body language and detecting deception overall? One of the things we tend to do, and we don't even mean to, it's typically going to be subconscious or just the way we normally think, and we don't always realize until somebody points it out. We often look at these things as though they're a very clear sentence on a paper. That's exactly what I did when I started learning about this. We think it's cut and dry. Jack's holding a pail of water. So either Jack went and got water, or he picked up the pail with water, or he picked up an empty pail and somebody gave him water. Like Those are the most logical conclusions, therefore it must be that or one of those three things. Or we take verbal statements and realize that it seems like the way I was trained or taught that there tends to be enough truth behind this or enough studies behind this statement that it's just probably generally going to mean that. And therefore, I just don't look into it any further, which is typically not a conscious thought. It just kind of happens and comes with the territory. So when you're doing this, you got to look at all the factors involved. So we have clusters, which is going to be two or more movements, although typically there will be more than that if you're really paying attention. And when we look at things like pictures, we're only looking at a snapshot in time, like sometimes thousands of a second. So we have to take in context the situation or the information available. So try not to look at this like a sentence, like a statement of fact. Look at it like a story, like a fiction or nonfiction story. Now, what do I mean by that? Okay, let's look at how a story is constructed. Who are the other characters in that story? And if the characters are not in that scene, are there characters that were engaging with the main character we're focusing on prior to us getting there that could have caused the situation we're seeing now? Remember, nonverbal body language tends to mostly be subconscious, if not all of it, most of the time. It's coming from our thoughts. So a person can actually be having things going through their head that could have happened five minutes ago that we didn't witness. And if we could see what was going on in their head, we might see that situation. And that's why they're giving these displays or these signals. Another thing to look at in a story, where is the setting? Where is this taking place? So when we're seeing things like body language or we're hearing certain types of statements, do they make sense for that environment? Are they appropriate to that environment? The other thing is, what's the backstory of that character? When you're observing somebody, is this a new character in the book that you're first coming upon, you haven't learned anything about yet? Or is this a character from a previous story? So an existing character might be a co-worker, a friend, a family member, or just somebody in the general public you regularly interact with because it's the same checkout person at the business you're at. What's the time of day and weather like in the story? If the person is slurring their words, for example, what's going on in that situation? Are they at a bar where that would make more sense? Did they just get up? Have they been up too long? Do they have some sort of mental situation or injury that causes that? You know this is all part of the environmental factors of a person's blink rate is exceptionally high does it have to do with the conversation whether or not they're being truthful and honest is there something in their eyes exceptionally dry do they have dry eyes are they wearing contacts that could give them dry eyes is it extra bright out today is there some sort of reflection so there's always many factors to look at so the reason this came up was one of the uh, pictures was about a person who crosses arms and legs and then one that happened today was about how a person might just cross their ankles when they're sitting which could mean anxiety or very likely discomfort. And then if they were standing and crossing their ankles talking to somebody, that might mean that they're thinking about something or mentally engaged, whether or not it's on that subject. So using this example because of a conversation I got in with somebody on there was there saying, look, it's Saturday morning. I'm just relaxing, watching TV, and I'm crossing my ankles, and I don't have this stuff, which is where I got a brief discussion about the story and looking at all the factors like we just covered. One of the things I pointed out too is you're seeking comfort because you're relaxing. So in that situation, it may just be discomfort is physical and not mental. We have to remember that all these different words and phrases can be physical and or mental. So in this situation, you might find something else discomfort and you're going to that position. It's like, well, but you said that could be discomfort. It can be discomfort. One of the things I pointed out is it's very unlikely a person could maintain one position like that for many, many hours without making any sort of adjustment. And in that situation, a person who finds that comfortable, when it comes to the point of being discomfort, they'll more often or not alternate their ankles over which one's on top and bottom instead of just give up the position altogether. Although some people will give up that position. Another thing I pointed out was that in the statement I had made on the posting was that a person might be thinking about something else. This was in the description of, we have to look at all these other factors. One of the first things I mentioned was discussing body language was the example I go to all the time where we get these uh, answers about what's it mean when somebody crosses their arm and everybody says closed off. Yet there are situations where it does mean that. So let's say it's a student-teacher relationship. Somebody's sitting there and they're having a discussion and they disagree or don't understand what their instructor is saying. And when the instructor starts to talk... They cross their arms and perhaps hold that position throughout the discussion and then they may or may not give it up although they typically will give it up if they respond and then go back to it waiting for a response in that situation there are definitely two things happening one is as i stated they are paying attention to what's going on and really intently listening which is what they're doing in that situation because they disagree so whether or not they're willing to admit it if you were to follow a conversation like that you'll find out they're listening intently because they're looking for any point they can argue to win the argument or their position at the same time. It is also a closed off position, not just because they're wrapping themselves around their body, which is a known closed position, but because they're trying to block out or send the message that they're not open to any argument they have. They just want to get their point across and people do this. Sometimes take the same situation, take the same conversation, change the tone change it to where it's not as argumentative and the person folds their arms, but leans in a sign of interest. They're no longer really closed off, but they are focused and listening intently. And even though they're closed off by wrapping themselves, that doesn't mean it's a negative. It means they're actually closing themselves off from many other factors, environmental factors and any other senses going on because they really want to focus on this information to learn it or understand it. A common mistake we make, and I made this too when I started learning this stuff, is not realizing the difficulty of it, even though it does seem simple we think that one or two examples of something where we get success at, it's easier to do this. Or it's easy to just look at it and say, oh, it means this all the time. Some of the examples I gave is somebody reads something in a book and they go, oh, this guy's lying. I'm like, no, that's not the case. You need more experience to put behind it. So when you're looking at these situations, try to break it down like there's a checklist of things you want to evaluate in order to make a decision. So we have a nonverbal display of some type and we're looking for more than one because there's probably going to be at least two or three. Then we're looking at the setting. Is it indoor? Is it outdoor? What are the environmental factors? How bright, how dark? What kind of lighting? Is this a restaurant? Is it a bar? Is it a park? What's the weather light? How are they dressed? They could be affected by the weather. Then look at who are the other characters involved, if I can see any, because some situations won't be characters. And then lastly, let's take a look at this conversation if you can hear it. What is being said? What's the tone of voice? How is that affecting the physical display of both people? And if you pick those four things and start adding them up and breaking them down, that's when you're going to get a better picture of whether or not this one display means what it tends to mean or does not. This is the biggest reason I tell people that body language is a very large subject with a lot of moving parts and pieces. Now, using the gentleman I spoke with on Facebook, we're going to look at this as a generality, not specific to him. If you're in that situation and you recognize something and think it doesn't apply, what's also going on in the background in your mind. At any point during this physical display or leading up to it, did you have a thought or a conversation, or did you hear something say on news or commercial that potentially could have caused you to have the reaction, the emotional state that would cause that language to display non-verbally. So using this example, Let's say you're listening to TV, you see something on the news that you don't like, therefore it causes you discomfort and you have this display. Now that's just one of many examples, but for some of you out there, you may find this easier to do when looking at other people if instead of trying to sit down and evaluate all those factors when looking at somebody, as you try to evaluate yourself through your own self-reflection. What is my current environment? Who are the other characters? And in this situation, the other characters just might be people talking on a TV, for example. You know, what's going on in your head? What happened prior to this? And prior to could be last night. It depends on what's still active and coming up in your thought process, even if it's only briefly. We actually see this all the time. A simple example is a couple people you know get into an argument. You happen to know last night they got in an argument. You speak with or see one of them today, and you're like, oh, geez, you're so upset about that. Or perhaps the opposite. You're like, oh, you sound better. You look better. Yeah, we talked it out, we got over it, or I just let it go, blah, 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 blah. One example, but there are many examples like that where sometimes our thoughts or actions that have happened, whether we're even thinking about them or not, because it could be subconscious, is carrying us through into the next day, even weeks later. On the Easy Way to Be Great podcast, when we talked about ways to change your appearance, one of the things I pointed out was about women how it could affect their emotional state if they were not able to, say, get their hair done and it got just completely out of control, or if they were able to go get real nice hair done and get all the coloring and everything in the light and how it could make them feel. And in that examples and others I used for men as well, I pointed out that in that situation, you want to try to hide those displays because people will pick up and see them. They'll notice them. So you want to determine what they are, right? So using that example, whether we realize it or not, And it's sometimes easier to see in other people. Sometimes it's easier to see in us. We do have nonverbal communication, even if nobody's ever displaying because of things going on in our head. And especially when it comes to ourselves, we forget that the majority of this is subconscious. We're not even really aware it's still going on. We're not necessarily aware that something still bothers us if it was something negative or something still makes us happy. Have you ever had anybody point out that you're still displaying, say, something negative or you're speaking or behaving or treating somebody in a certain way and you forget and realize or through the conversation that you're actually still upset about something and didn't realize it? It's because it's in your subconscious. Or what about the same thing, but when it's something positive, you have no idea that you're giving off a certain vibe or a certain look or displaying a certain body language. Somebody says, oh, what happens to you? Oh, this great thing happened or, oh, I went on a date last night. These are all things we have to look at in this grand scheme of things of evaluating the situation. What else is happening in this picture? What is happening I'm not seeing? And not seeing could be just in their mind. It could be things outside of your view. could have been something that happened in the past, and the past could have varying lengths of time. So if you're wondering how do we determine these things, it's through observation and interaction, whichever ones work for you. If you notice a lot of my suggestions start with things like videos and then watching people in public, especially people you don't know to get rid of those biases. And I steer people to that to start picking up on more of this stuff naturally before they get to trying to do it while interacting with somebody. I do this because one, it's harder when you're involved in something, especially if it's anything emotional, positive or negative. It's also because until it becomes second nature or you're a little smoother at it, or a little more comfortable with it, even subconsciously, a lot of times people can figure out what you're doing or notice that something's wrong. Because you don't realize that you're behaving differently, giving different nonverbal signals. And that type of conversation can affect the outcome of what you're doing or completely screw up that conversation for you. So how much time can you reasonably invest through observation or interaction Is this a situation where you get two minutes or five minutes? Or you're sitting there having dinner by yourself or with somebody else and you're listening to another conversation observing a couple for an hour. So one of the things you're starting to learn now or you'll start to see if you follow this process Is it actually mimics kind of intelligence in a way that you're in a position where you have to make assessments which of course you don't have to but let's say you did you have to make assessments off a certain amount of information and sometimes there's just not enough time or enough information which means you can get it wrong for me i was lucky i got to do this while actively interrogating for an agency in the military so i not only had tons of interrogation videos i could watch I could sit in there with a person up to 20 hours a day for several weeks if I wanted to, observing their body language, evaluating their language, looking for deception, looking for their emotional state. I could put more time into any one person in a day than most of us put into any person we know well in a week. So knowing that, let's look at it this way. People you know well. How many days does it take for you to reach around 20 hours of conversations with somebody? Now, some of us do knock this out in a few days with people that we're very close to. But a lot of times we'll find that actually could take several weeks to reach 20 hours of conversation if we factor all conversations in, whether personal or professional. Then you can get in a situation where an interrogator might be able to do 20 hours in one day. And if they can do that for several days, that's 100 hours in five days. So the disadvantage this interrogator may have, but you would have if you knew the person really well, is how much they already know about that person consciously and subconsciously from a backstory. However, how long does it take you to reach 100 hours of conversation? This interrogator gets 100 hours with this person to look for deception, read body language, evaluate a story, do repeat and control questions, spend a lot of time figuring out what's going to work with them, what's going to get them to communicate. So they both have some give and take. So the point is, remember always, how much real experience do you have in doing this? How much are you really trying to figure out? Are you trying to learn this? You're just doing it for fun. How much formal training and education do you have? How much research have you put into it? And then for every situation you're looking at, how much time was really available for you to look at it? Now, going back to the gentleman who was at home, just relaxing. He doesn't need a lot of experience or time. It's his own person. It's a very simple situation. There's only a few things to look at that to decide how something may or may not be affecting you. Because in that situation it very likely maybe means nothing or maybe there is some comfort being sought or some discomfort displayed because of some other factor. But that's a lot easier to figure out. Now let's take observing somebody we don't know or don't know well out in public. The biggest question is going to be how much time do you have to observe them? Now this is what leads into the answer of how reliable and accurate this is. There's many factors that will affect that outcome. Some we've already discussed like what's your own skill level? then we add in how much time do we have to observe this situation. One of the biggest factors of human nature, not only the observer's nature, but the person or persons they're observing, what is in their nature and what parts of human nature or culture affect them. Remember, this comes from soft sciences, not hard sciences, which have a lot to do with our own personalities, how our brains work, culture, human nature, things like this. comes basically from behavioral psychology as well as other parts of psychology and sociology. It doesn't take much to look up and find out there's tons of academic and research data and thorough test studies and people out there with years of experience that can back this up. But What they should all be telling you is it takes a lot of pieces to do the math on this to make a determination. And there are people out there that in the world of psychology or just reading body language like I do and evaluating for deception, get enough years of experience and knowledge that they could perhaps Determine something either more accurately than another person or maybe just as accurately, but they could do it quicker because of the experience and knowledge they have. So this is why I say and point out sometimes we have to be honest with ourselves. What's our real skill and ability? How much experience do we have? How much formal training? How much informal training? How much research do we have? How many hours do I have in learning and understanding this? Versus how many minutes I get to observe a situation or a person to determine what is really happening in that story. So no matter how you look at this, whether you choose language I use or you choose your own and you say you're going to look to see if somebody's lying or look to see if somebody's telling the truth or you're going to look for deception, whatever you're doing, try to change the thought process to evaluating the situation to determine what is most likely happening at that moment. That gives you a better chance of avoiding biases and being more objective. Whereas if you say, I'm going to try to figure out if this guy's lying. Well, most people tend to take lying unfavorably. Therefore, our subconscious biases or preconceived notions are kicked in. We might follow a pattern of confirmation bias just to determine or try to prove that they are in fact lying. The exact could happen if we say, I'm going to find out if this guy's telling the truth, or I'm going to try to disprove that he's lying. While there are methods and techniques where that can be effective, you could still get the same outcome. Or same effect negatively because of preconceived notions or biases, which we don't want. So think of this as a process to go through to evaluate a situation to determine what's happening. And then over time, it'll actually come quicker. So how could this change things for you? Over time, you'll find that whether I say it or you read in a book somewhere when it comes to say body language or detecting deception verbally. If it tends to say like when a person does it, it means this or tends to mean this with enough experience over time you'll most likely come to agree with that statement. If something is said, look, this may mean this and it may not, you'll come to find out that can be the case. And you won't put as much emphasis on trying to determine that specific piece when you want to look at something more prominent that tends to mean something most of the time, if not all the time. Then when you see and hear something that very commonly can mean two or more things, you'll realize it's probably going to take either more effort or more observation or factoring in more pieces to determine what that means at that particular time. And I would say the hardest part is realizing that when you take usually a specific person and or a specific situation and you hear or see something repeatedly, it becomes easy to fall in the trap to consciously usually think that's what it's going to mean all the time or at least all the time in this conversation or situation. So look for repetitive patterns. If a person or people in general in a situation tend to consistently follow a pattern of speaking a certain way, behaving a certain way, or displaying nonverbal body language a certain way, there's probably enough there to make the assessment that it tends to mean that for that person all the time, or that person in that situation, or the group of people in that situation. So it tends to lend credibility more to the situation, and then if you're able to observe the people outside of that, you can then factor in, okay, was it really just that situation? Was it that group of people? Was it kind of a community bias thing? Or does this person tend to do that naturally all the time? And then if so, how's that going to affect your evaluation of the first observation you had that you're doing a follow-up on by seeing them outside of that situation? So there are a lot of moving parts and a lot of thought that goes into this. That's why when I do this, especially when I get paid to do it, I'm sitting there with a notebook, I'm taking notes, I'm referencing material, I prepare beforehand because even though I'm far better than the average person at this, I'm by no means at the top of the list of the people that have these skills and abilities. When it comes to people who professionally do this, who get paid for it, I'm a little bit above average. But that's only in certain areas. I'm far better at working with evaluating people's verbal language than I am with body language, at least as far as determining on the fly and with a high degree of accuracy within moments. Whereas with body language... I have to put a little more time into it to evaluate all the factors combined. That's just how it works for me. One of my friends is the exact opposite. He does the body language thing on the fly a lot more accurately and quicker. But with the verbal stuff, it takes a lot of time and thought and research to put into it. We're factoring in more pieces to determine what it may mean in that situation. So do realize that your varying skills will be different from one person to another or your abilities, what you get really good at, or maybe it turns out to be equal for you. So let's recap and focus on the important points. One is to be very honest with ourselves. How much experience do I have? How much formal and informal training? How much research? And how do I balance that against how much observational time I have in this situation? And how well do I know the people in this situation? Don't forget who are the characters, what's the environment like, what's the setting, what's the conversation, and how much time and experience you have to evaluate that. Also, you have to ask yourself, does that even matter? Is this a situation where that nonverbal display as an example? It tends to mean this most of the time. And you know what? With my limited experience looking at that, it makes sense to me. That's probably the case going with your gut. And I say that mainly because we observe a lot of things. We just don't know what they are. But they translate in our subconscious quite often through our own experiences what a lot of these nonverbal and verbal signals are, we just do consciously realize that we're doing the math in our head. That's why going with your gut and following your instincts actually tends to work for most people most of the time. As you're learning this stuff, focus on the areas that are most important. When you start to realize that there's things out there that through your own experience, you're like, yep, this tends to mean this most of the time. That's going to be a lot quicker and easier to accept in most situations. Whereas you'll find statements or actions and you realize, oh, yeah, that definitely can mean a lot of different things. It depends on all these other factors. Then you'll probably have to do more math, put more pieces together. What are the other verbals and nonverbals that are happening? What are the other factors in the setting, the environment, and their characters? It might take a little more effort to determine and evaluate what that really means in that situation. Realize and remember this is based a lot on behavioral psychology, human nature, and culture does play a part. And remember that culture is a varying term. It could be the culture of a religion. It could be the culture of that person's politics. It could be the part of the country that they're from, no matter what country you're in. When it comes to verbal things, how well does that person speak that language? How do they normally communicate that language into something specific stand out? This is the same idea when we talk about the visual aspects of being a gray man. What is appropriate to the situation? What stands out? What makes sense? Do you look like you're supposed to be there? When it comes to detecting deception, it's the same thing. Does these verbal statements and displays make sense? Do they match the environment? And this is why, going back to the beginning of all this, and what I always talk to people about being gray, is people focus way too much on the gray man concept being the clothes you're wearing in your appearance. That's why we did the episode talking about your behavior, your conduct, Most of what you do is interact with people. You only have about 30 seconds that even matters with your appearance and it's probably less in most situations. This is why I tell people the hardest part about being gray isn't the way you look, it's how you behave, how you speak, how you act. So when you're evaluating somebody and trying to look for deception or just trying to read their emotional state through body language, if you're not looking for deception, don't make assumptions, but make presumptions. The difference is presumptions are logical deductions based on their appearance What deductions could you make? If you're at a restaurant, does their appearance make sense? Is their manner of dress probably normal to them or an everyday thing? Or are they dressed up? Are they on a first date? Are they having a business meeting? Do they look uncomfortable? Factor in their appearance because their appearance might be affecting those nonverbal displays, which can affect how they talk and communicate if they have any sort of anxiety or stress. And this is where we start to see the pieces coming together of, the visual aspects of being gray and what we see and presume about people. Then there's the nonverbal things we have to learn more about and look for. And then there's the actual conversation. Just remember that when I say the appearance doesn't matter as much, that's the physical appearance of the clothes you're wearing. You don't want it to be a dead giveaway, but it has very little factor on this entire process. After that, we move into behavior. And behavior is where we start to see verbal, nonverbal signals as well as how those signals change with the interaction of the situation, the person, or as things progress over time. So all this should give you a better idea of all the factors to take in. Remember, not everything is necessarily cut and dry, and even if something tends to mean something or predominantly means something all the time, there's other factors to evaluate in there. Remember, there's things you're not gonna see, including things in their past that may have affected their mental state at this time. Compare that to any conversation where a person seems upset or seems happy, and you either ask or find out whether or not it has anything to do with you, and oftentimes it has to do with something else that's in their head. While this is a lot, it does give you a better idea on the difficulty of this, yet the advantages that people have in law enforcement or in the intelligence world, when they get to sit in a closed room with somebody for many hours and many days, this is where this stuff really starts to matter and help them with somebody they don't know very well. Whereas in our personal lives, especially when you're more emotionally connected to somebody, unless you're actively trying to do it, it's kind of hard to keep on naturally until you have a lot of experience or when we're watching people or interacting with people and trying to do it someplace we don't know somebody or at a party. Yeah, we can focus a lot more on it, but we may not get the minutes or hours of observation or listening to determine what is really happening in these situations. That's why overall it's going to take a lot of hours of experience to really apply all this Get it worked out together to figure out whether or not somebody's being deceptive or what their emotional state is. So if you enjoyed this on whatever platform you're on, don't forget to give it a like or a heart. Share it with somebody if you think they'll enjoy it. Feel free, please, to shoot me questions on Twitter or Facebook or comment on the stuff that's coming out or that's already been out. Coming up this week, every morning, there'll be some sort of verbal statement with an evaluation of it. And some of them, I've taken examples of those and used memes to... Give an example of what that phrase could be used for. Hopefully, you can come up with some examples of your own. Please make those comments and contribute to the posts as well as ask your questions or make your criticisms. And if it's needed, I'll do another podcast on that. And we can look forward to at least one more deception related podcast on Wednesday and then possibly next Saturday, one more or starting a new series of subjects on the gray man concept. Thank you. And we look forward to giving you another show on the gray man concept right here on gray man hiding in plain sight